The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Jerry Hutch's trial for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in Dublin concluded yesterday. A verdict is due to be delivered, delivered in April. The judges of the Special Criminal Court will also have to decide on the fate of two men accused of facilitating Mr. Byrne's murder back in February of 2016. Our court's correspondent Frank Graney joins me now to take us through the main talking points from the closing speeches delivered across the past few days. Frank, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Let's begin with the prosecution's final words to the judges. What do they have to say about uh, the allegations made against each of the accused? Well, I suppose given the amount of time allocated to the case against um, Jerry Hutch and the relative seriousness of the charge faced by him when compared to the other men in the dock, it came as no surprise during the week that the prosecution's closing speech focused a lot of attention to its case against Mr. Hutch, who is the only one on trial for the murder of David Byrne. Sean Gillan opened the case for the prosecution back in October, but it was his fellow prosecutor, Fiona Murphy, who closed it on Wednesday. And in relation to the case being made against Mr. Hutch, I think it's fair to say that so much hinges on the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall. He spent eight days in the box before Christmas. The majority of that time was being spent was spent under cross-examination at the hands of Mr. Hutch's barrister, Brendan Grehan. Jonathan Dowdall claims he and his father met Jerry Hutch the night before the shooting to hand over a key card to a room at the Regency Hotel, which was later used by one of the gunmen. And he also claims that Jerry Hutch confessed his involvement during an alleged meeting with him in a park a few days after the shooting. Some doubt was cast over Jonathan Dowdall's recollection of this meeting, which was alleged to take place in uh, Whitehall in Dublin. Um, in particular, in relation to the precise date and time it's alleged to have taken place, he seemed unsure about that. But Ms Murphy countered that in her closing address by saying his uncertainty in relation to those details was down to certain things being lost in the passage of time. The big elephant in the room, undoubtedly, is Jonathan Dowdall's credibility and reliability as a witness. And Ms Murphy didn't and perhaps she couldn't shy away from that. She said there was no hiding from the fact that he has a previous conviction for what she described as a serious and disgusting criminal offence. This was a reference to him torturing, uh, waterboarding a man in the garage of his home on the Navin Road a number of years ago. She said that he was an admitted liar. And she said that while there are things that won't endear him to the judges, she suggested that doesn't mean he cannot be believed. She reminded the court that once a decision to drop the murder charge against Jonathan Dowdall was dropped and Jonathan Dowdall once upon a time was facing a murder charge in relation to this investigation. It was dropped. He has pleaded and is serving a sentence for a lesser offence. But Ms Murphy reminded the court that once that decision was made, he was under no obligation to come to court and give his evidence, but he did. And in relation to a secretly recorded conversation that was played during the trial between Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall as they travelled to Northern Ireland one month after the shooting. She said there were certain admissions of Hutch's involvement. The 10 hours or so of that recording was played in falling court um, and she said that there were certain admissions in that there was no denial or pushback from Jerry Hutch against certain implications mm. that he was centrally involved. She said the audio centred around the AK-47s used at the Regency. She claimed it was clear that he had knowledge of them and was in control of them. You mentioned two other men in the dock. They are Jason Bonney of Drumnai Wood in Port Marnock and Paul Murphy of Cherry Avenue in Swords. And they're both accused of facilitating the murder 
by providing vehicles to those behind now, the attack. Uh, you, you said at the very beginning, you know, it's up to the prosecution to make its case and uh, an accused person doesn't have to do anything. Uh, they don't even have to mount a defence if they think that the prosecution's case is, is so weak. But uh, Jason Bonney, there was evidence given in, his, in regard to him. There was. He was the only one of the three defence legal teams that went into evidence. And you are correct to say that the defence is under no obligation to go into evidence, to call witnesses. They don't even have to cross-examine prosecution witnesses. That clearly happened at length throughout the lengthy trial. Um, John Fitzgerald is the man representing Jason Bonney, and he essentially said that his client wasn't driving his black BMW Jeep at the time of the shooting. He called two alibi witnesses earlier this week. One of them, a woman called Julie McGlynn, put Jason Bonney at a different location location at times relevant to the investigation and another witness claimed that he saw Jason's father Willie Bonney uh, driving his son's jeep shortly after the shooting now the prosecution claims they're both lying and they also now, it's important to point out that Jason Bonney's father is deceased that's correct yes. so could so not be called to say where he was or wasn't Absolutely, yes. And that's really important. He obviously wasn't in a position to corroborate this um, alibi one way or another. And the prosecution did call a rebuttal witness. Interestingly, they called Jason Bonney's brother-in-law, who claimed that he was with uh, Willie Bonney at the time that he was supposedly seen driving Jason's Jeep on the day of the shooting. And he also said that he never saw Willie Bonney uh, driving his son's Jeep. He said that he had his own black Lexus Jeep. Jason Bonney was spotted on CCTV footage. This was shown to the judges getting into his Jeep outside his home on the morning of the shooting. He's seen again returning to his home in that same Jeep later that afternoon. And his barrister in his closing address said that, that doesn't mean that he was in control of or driving his car at all times in between. He said it was clear that their case is that he handed his father the key to the Jeep outside a house that he was renovating. And one of the alibi witnesses did seem to corroborate that version. But again, she was accused of lying by the other side. And it will, of mm. course, be up to the judges to decide on her reliability or otherwise. Now, uh, Paul Murphy is facing the same charge as Jason Bonney, but he's not relying on alibi witnesses. So how is he challenging a pretty serious allegation that's been made against him? Well, his barrister, Bernard Condon, was the last barrister to address the court yesterday before the trial concluded. And he described the case against Paul Murphy as circumstantial. He accused the prosecution of using broad stroke assertions to try and convict his client. But he said assertions are not evidence. He said there was no focus on detail. He reminded the judges that guilt by association or suspicion is not the same as guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. He said Buckingham Village in Dublin's north inner city was being put forward as the centre of operations for the hit team that day. And he said that just because his client's Toyota Avensis taxi was there does not mean that he was involved. He doesn't accept that Paul Murphy's taxi was in convoy uh, with Jason Bonney's Jeep on the day in question. Uh, he described CCTV footage shown during the trial as being of poor quality. He said his client's taxi couldn't be identified because of glare and the lack of high definition footage. He said his taxi wasn't seen on the footage of the suspected hit team running up a laneway towards the alleged getaway vehicles. This was shortly after the shooting. He said there was a huge gap in the evidence against his client and he said those blanks could not be filled by suspicion. Now, uh, the evidence has all been heard. Um, the lawyers have made their final submissions to the judges. What happens next? Because a uh, verdict in April, I mean, this wouldn't happen if you had a jury, for example. They wouldn't be given months to make up their mind. So what, what's the procedure here? 
yeah, it's it's very different to, we'll say, a murder trial that would be heard in the ordinary way in the central criminal court before 12 jurors. They would be sent out to begin their deliberations. They would come back with a verdict within days, possibly weeks. And we would be given absolutely no idea as to how they arrived at their decision. So uh, I suppose it's not unusual, given the fact that they put it back so far until the 17th of April. It's not that unusual, given the circumstances of this trial, because you have to remember that it's essentially three trials running as one. So the judges will have to consider each of the cases independently. This was a long trial. It was conducted over the course of 52 hearing days. There was a long list of witnesses, long list of exhibits. So there's a lot for them to consider. And, you know, obviously they will have to then give a very detailed account of how they arrived at their decisions in relation to the three of the accused. The They will have to explain with forensic-like detail how they arrived at their decisions. And we should get that on the 17th of April. And I can tell you now, speaking to you from the Criminal Courts of Justice this morning, it is a very different atmosphere in the building now that the trial has concluded. For starters, as I was coming in today for the first time in 13 weeks, I wasn't greeted by armed guardy patrolling the perimeter of the building. Uh, that security, those security measures uh, seem to have been falling away now that the trial has concluded. Frank Graney, our courts correspondent, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Well, now we're going to talk sport. I didn't see a tee come in my direction at all, but uh, apparently that's what happened. And if rules were reversed and I had to throw that tee at him, I'd be expecting a lawsuit. The unmistakable voice of uh, Rory McIlroy, and he's in Dubai. And uh, last I saw, he was sharing the lead with the man who threw the tee at him, Patrick Reed. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.